Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reads, you get prompt communication, reads or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Janet doesn't just do reads either. Look at JanetIngle.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for read-making videos, classes, and boot camps. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH for 10% off their first order at JanetIngle.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. reluctant special guest here with us today, the illustrious Chris Wilson, husband of Jackie Wilson. Hi, Chris. Hi, Galit. <laughs> he doesn't want to be here. <laughs> we had to talk him into it. Yes. By talking him into it, it's basically like you're doing this, and then he futilely said no. <laughs> I was bullied into this. <laughs> Chris, would you tell us and our listeners who you are and what you do? Uh, sure. Um, I'm a percussionist. Um, I'm one half of the uh, illustrious uh, Wilson duo. Uh, we should cut that. We're going to change the name. You are? <laughs> well, we're using quarantine to kind of revamp. Rebrand. Yeah. Exactly. New music has been written and we're <clears> like, okay, maybe there could be, you know. A little more thought put into it. Yeah, like a, a, a new approach. And uh, so, yeah, that includes maybe a new name. <laughs> the as Hopefully. yet unnamed. Yeah, the artist formerly, formerly known, known. As, as the Wilson Dill. <laughs> yeah, say that. <laughs> I want to hear more about performing as a husband and wife duo. Well, um, Jackie is actually an incredible person to perform with, and that's not just because she's sitting at here staring at uh, sitting here staring at me. Oh my god, I'm cutting but, this out. Uh, <laughs> I will say the beginning of the Wilson duo did include a lot of bickering. I don't oh, really know no. why. Um, I think moving from a 
social space to a professional space was like, it felt different. I don't know. Because especially, I wouldn't say the bickering ever had much to do with like musical ideas. It wasn't like, oh, play that different. Or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we tend to have a lot of respect for each other musically. But so I guess that's why the performances tend to be really positive. Um, we shut up. <laughs> just shut up and play. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're supposed to play uh, at IDRS this year with another uh, husband and wife percussion and bassoon duo, but we'll get... Shout out Stephanie Patterson and Chris Reichmeyer. Rain check. Yeah, rain checked for uh, next year. That seems to be a popular uh, pairing is bassoon and percussion. There is us, yep. there's Stephanie and Chris, there is Stacy Spring and her husband Keith, there's Amy and Scott Pollard. Those are the spouses that we know of, but there are even others who play together. There's Across the Grain duo. Yeah, Across the Grain is, uh, is another duo. Yeah. It's a pretty popular uh, pairing. Ironically so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris. Yes. In the last episode, we had my wife Becky on, and... Mm-hmm. Um, we asked her a few questions that I would love to return the favor. Of course. On mostly because she roasted me. <laughs> <laughs> first things first, I want to know what is the weirdest place you've ever found Kane? I think I have found Kane in the bed before. <laughs> It's your midnight snack. (laughs) (laughs) I I know. So Jackie has a robe she loves to wear. And I know that I have seen shavings all over that. Oh my God. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Ooh, ooh. But I should say the worst, worse than the shavings is um, the wires. (laughs) Is that sometimes she'll oh, snip, God. snip the wires and they'll just go flying. And I have stepped on them on because the, they'll get lost in the carpet. I've stepped on them a bunch of times. <laughs> you just pick up your foot and it's like a porcupine. There's yes. like 800 pieces of wire <laughs> sticking out of your foot. Oh, my God. <laughs> Listen. So I would love to hear about uh, an embarrassing Jackie story. The only thing I can really think of is Jackie does not have a very good sense of direction. And so I have gotten a lot of phone calls, like <laughs> I, these like frantic, I have no idea where I am phone calls. <laughs> the worst was w- one of the times that you went up to Missouri all state where you were trying to get to the high school and you'd circled it maybe five times and could not figure out how to get there. <laughs> I want to go to there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might've also been the same one when you're driving back and there was construction and you got off the highway and somehow wound up, I don't even remember where you are. I was looking at the map and like, the, you're, you went in the wrong direction and were low on gas. Um, yeah, I had the GPS <laughs> on. And then there was a total traffic jam on the interstate. And they're like, there's a faster route if you go in these back roads. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And I was really low on gas. And I got so low on gas, I was worried about running out. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you need to get on Google and find me a gas station 
to redirect me to because I'm going to run out of gas and I'm in the boonies. And he'd be like, where are you? And I'd be like, I don't know. And he'd be like, where did you turn off the interstate? And I went, I don't know. Yeah, I definitely did not run out of gas, but I came very close. And I was like screaming at him and like... It was hilly, and I was like, I keep going on hills, and I know that's not gas efficient. <laughs> so I, I grew up on a farm. I used, to, I used to get lost and, like, just find my way home all the time. I used to go running on the farmland by myself. And so there were times when picking her up from something, I'd be on the phone with her and say, oh, you're on Burlington Street. Are you on the east side of the road or the west side of the road? And she go, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Girl, same. Chris, can you name any famous bassoonists? I can probably name a lot of famous bassoonists. <laughs> um, of course, I can, I can talk at length about various orchestras, people, you know, uh, former principals like Sherman Walt from the Boston Symphony Orchestra or Ooh, current members good. of the oh. Boston Symphony Orchestra like Rick Ranty or Richard Savota. Very good! Um, but of course, I, I teased Jackie about this last night. I said... I'm going to tell everyone that uh, she's obsessed with Sophie Derveaux. Guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Guilty as touched. (laughs) Okay, so I would love to end on uh, this question. What is your favorite thing about watching your wife perform? Ooh, great question. Probably about the time that uh, we were living in Eau Claire. So this was right after her doctorate, but before I went back to school for mine. Um, Jackie started to take on a power stance when she plays. (laughs) And Now I'm going to feel like everyone just looks at me (laughs) looking for this. Fine, continue. (laughs) When Jackie and I were in our undergrad, there was a member of faculty at Eastern Washington named Kendall Feeney. And Kendall was, um, she was a pianist. She did mostly the contemporary ensemble. She also had a professional uh, modern ensemble in Spokane uh, named Zephyr for a number of years. And we were a part of contemporary ensemble. And she had a huge influence on us. And Kendall was the ultimate rock star. Oh, I love it. Uh, there was one time at, we had um, a weekly convocation at Eastern and uh, one of the times that they did faculty convocations, they bring out the piano right next to it. The curtain was closed and the piano in front of it. And as the lights go dim, she flies out from behind the curtain, from the, the space in the center of the curtain, flies out, <laughs> hits the bench, and just immediately starts playing. That is the best thing I've ever heard. She was theatrical. She was theatrical. She also, what was the concerto? Uh, what's the, the Doherty? La Tombo de Liberace. So we, was, there was a <laughs> concert that was La Tombo de Liberace, and she comes down the aisle with her rings and a cape on and oh my God. in full Liberace drag. She did inspire my dead Elvis, I have. Without a doubt. <laughs> so Kendall was, um, she was a very intense performer as well. And I see, I, I think that, 
just as young musicians, we took so much from her. We both admired her a lot. She's admired. recently passed. Yeah, she passed away a few years ago. Oh. But so yeah, when we're, we were saying what to look for with Jackie, I, I see a lot of Kendall Fianney in her. Well, I take that, that as a compliment. a beautiful story. I guess I won't Aww. cut it. <laughs> Chris, this was so much fun. Thank you for finally agreeing to join us. Thank you for having me. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish Celeste Johnson, Associate Professor of Oboe at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We love to get to know our guests by finding out how they began to play their instrument. So how did you get started on the oboe? Sure. Well, that's actually kind of a funny story. So uh, my stepdad was actually my middle school band director, and so we came home from school with a list of instruments you could play. And I had so many friends that were going to join the band in fifth grade. And um, I knew I would join the band because my stepdad was the director. So, um, and my mom was in the air force band, actually my whole time I was growing up played clarinet. And so I always knew I'd play an instrument and I just never knew which one. And so I looked at the list and I thought, what's an oboe. I want to play that. And all my friends were playing these really more popular instruments, and I wanted to play what nobody else was playing. So I had no idea what it was, and my parents actually tried to talk me out of it a little bit, and they said, well, you have to make reeds, and I thought, well, that sounds fun. And (laughs) they got me recordings of the oboe and had me listen to it, and of course, there were these beautiful oboe recordings of Vivaldi and Bach, and so it just actually convinced me more to play it. So then my mom went out and bought me an oboe and brought it home. And I looked at it. I said, what's that? That's so small. And I think I thought I was signing up to play the bassoon. But uh, here we are. And that's sort of how it all got started. And I was really lucky that they started me in lessons with handmade reeds on a used Loray oboe. So um, pretty fortunate for a a 10-year-old oboe player to have those opportunities to get started on the right foot. What prompted your decision to become a professional oboist? Mm. I was in high school and I had done all the band and youth orchestras and things like that. Um, I really just couldn't think of anything else. (laughs) I know maybe that's not the best answer, but I really thought 
this is sort of what I had, um, you know, built my um, high school friendships and opportunities on. And I just thought, well, I better give this a go because I really enjoy it. And I felt motivated by it. And, um, you know, I actually ended up going to the University of Illinois. Uh, and in part, because I thought, well, if I go to a big university, I can change my major. And I think anyone that has met me since I was 18 would say that that was sort of a ridiculous notion because I was sort of the last person that would ever want to change my major out of music. But, um, but really it was, it was probably in high school. I just, I couldn't think of anything else I would rather spend my life doing. I tried to think of other things, um, but I couldn't think of anything I enjoyed more or wanted to spend my life um, doing. And, and so went to college as a music major, probably, you know, some of the things that were inspirational to me in high school were, you know, doing all state orchestra, things like that, um, or youth symphony really helped to prompt me or prod me in that direction. So can you talk to us about embarking on your professional journey, walk us through your educational journey and how you got started as a professional? When I was a junior in high school, I was studying with Phil Koch, who was in the Virginia Symphony at the time, and he studied with Richard Kilmer at Eastman and for his master's degree, and he encouraged me to go to Rochester and take a lesson with him, and so I did, and he, Richard Kilmer encouraged me to look at the University of Illinois to study with Nancy King, who was there at the time. This was in the late 90s, and uh you know, encouraged me to go study with Nancy King at the University of Illinois, which is how I found that place and that school and that teacher. Um, so I off I go to Illinois. And during that time, I really decided, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be 110% into it. Um, and I did a number of competitions and summer festivals and then ended up going to grad school at Eastman four years later, which I was really grateful to have that opportunity a number of years later to do my master's degree. And then I spent, um, it was like a three month season playing with the Sarasota opera after my master's. And it was at that time I thought, well, I really don't want to get a doctorate. I was really tired of school and I really just wanted to get out in the world and be a grown up, um, find opportunities as an oboist and as a teacher and as a musician. So I was taking a lot of orchestra auditions at the time. And during that time, I actually took audition lessons in New York with Bill Williams. And he was a trumpet player. And he actually helped me tremendously with my auditions. And um, he taught me how to take auditions. And I started advancing in auditions once I started taking those lessons on how to audition well. He didn't teach me to play the oboe. That was all my oboe teachers, of course. Um, so that was really helpful. And then I was advancing, but not necessarily winning. And, um, and I say that the luckiest audition I ever took was the Florida West Coast Symphony, which Adam Dinitz won, who's now in the Houston Symphony. But um, I was runner-up. And it was June or July. I was finishing my master's degree, and I didn't want to continue in school. And I went to Mr. Kilmer. And I said, well, I was runner up and there's no more auditions. I don't know what I'm going to do now. And he said, oh, I just got a call from Oklahoma State University. They're looking for an oboe professor and it's kind of last minute because it would start in August. And I said, well, where do I, what do I do? 
I had no idea how to apply for a college teaching job. Um, it's what I really wanted to do, but I didn't think I would ever be qualified at that young of an age or at that stage in my career. So I went to Eastman's Career Services office and I got a lot of help. I was back there every day um, with new revisions on my cover letter and my CV and getting recordings ready and I sent everything in. And by the time things kind of developed and materialized with that position, it was July. And um, I got a phone call. We had a phone interview. And then the day, the very next day after the phone interview, the department chair called me and said, we want to hire you to teach oboe at Oklahoma State University. And it starts in four weeks. We don't have time to have you come to campus. Will you take it? And it was a one-year position. This was a visiting position. And I said, yes. And then I looked at the map and I said, where is Stillwater? <laughs> <laughs> and, it was a, and then I sold everything I owned because it was all, you know, nothing I wanted to keep or of any value as far as my furniture and things. And I drove in my car from Rochester, New York to Stillwater, Oklahoma, my little Toyota Echo, two-door car, and I Ooh. had, yes, yes, and so I drove in my car, and I took nothing with me but my oboe, a TV, and my clothes, and showed up in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and sight unseen, and I ended up there for 12 years. Oh, and wow. Yeah, it was really a very significant part of my life and career being there, <clears throat> and um so then a year later, the tenure track position became available, and I was lucky enough to get that permanent position at OSU. And um, about two or three years later, a position in the Tulsa Symphony opened up. And so I took that audition. It was about an hour, hour and 15 minute drive away. And so I took that audition for second oboe and English horn and won. And so even though I was taking all those audition lessons, you know, in grad school, because I wanted, I thought I wanted to play in an orchestra full time. I was so glad to have done the, the rigorous training of, of preparing for auditions, not only because then I could teach, be a better teacher and teach people how to be successful in those realms, but also when it really counted, what I really wanted was to be a full-time college professor and have a part-time orchestra gig. And that's what I had. That's exactly what I got. It was amazing. And so um, for a long time, um, probably the next, you know, eight or 10 years, I was doing OSU and the Tulsa Symphony and um, staying really busy with teaching. I taught some other classes and um, in addition to oboe, of course. And then four years ago, um, job came open at UMKC and I applied and got it. So I moved up to Kansas City and um, have been really lucky to do some gigs up here and do some subbing with the Kansas City Symphony on occasion um, and have been really happy with the, the location and my students here um, and just sort of the, the opportunities that being in a big city provides as well. And, and that really brings us to, to today. I have a couple of follow-up questions. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, the first one is you had mentioned getting into um, playing the oboe because your friends were in band and, you know, yeah. there's that social aspect of 
of musicianship that can be really strong in uh, in school, middle school, high school, undergraduate. I mean, the ensemble social aspect is huge. Right. And I find that for some people, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, for some people, it can be extraordinarily difficult to also find a rich, solitary musicianship life in a practice room. Mm -hmm. So I would be really interested to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. You mean just trying to find ways to be really excited about practicing and motivated to practice? Yeah. How do you translate that excitement of music making in a group, which is a motivator for so many people to get in music in the first place? Right. To, oh, I'm spending so much of my time by myself. Well, and this will be released during this kind of social isolation period. It may even tie it into that as well. Well, I think it's really an interesting time to discuss that um, and to discuss being motivated to practice um, by yourself because of the global pandemic, COVID-19. And, um, you know, I think that I've been really fortunate in that I've just sort of always been motivated to practice. And for various reasons throughout my life, it's changed a lot throughout the time that I've been an oboist. But I think that um, on one hand, you just have to have some self-discipline and really be willing to do the nitty-gritty hard work that it takes so that you can bring that fun to the ensemble, Mm -hmm. to the performance, to your band or orchestra or chamber group or solo performance. Um, and just thinking about that, that kind of isolation that sometimes we encounter when we're just practicing so much to today's reality and how we have so many musicians now at home and isolated and quarantined. And, um, I have actually found, you know, that I have found some new, motivation and practicing the last couple of days. Um, now we're only, when we're doing this interview, we're only in day nine or 10. Um, so maybe ask me again in a month how I feel, (laughs) but, um, I actually have found that normally I encourage my students to do a very kind of, um, regimented warmup and play scales and long tones and be, and just to make it, you know, so it doesn't drive you crazy. I try and encourage students and myself to play, play warm-ups and fundamentals and do things and in, in kind of multitask. So if you're doing long tones, be working on your pitch and your tone and your dynamics and your vibrato all at the same time so that you're not just sort of, you know, bored out of your mind. And also so that you can get more done with your time because everyone is so limited on, on time to practice in our normal reality. Now, one thing I have found in this you know, epidemic or pandemic, I guess I should say, is that I, all of our concerts have been canceled. All of our projects and things we were so looking forward to and working so hard for have been canceled. And I actually decided to play music for fun again. What? Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's, it's actually, I'm not saying it's a good thing at all. It's really not. But um, if you try to find the silver lining, I've actually tried really hard to 
um, get music out that I haven't played in a long time. And I'm, I'm not playing my scales every day for the first time in 22 years. You know, and when I first went to college as a freshman, Nancy King said, you play your scales every day. And I really took that seriously, clearly, um, because I've been playing them every day for 22 years it, until now. And now I'm playing Cooperan and I'm mm. playing Bach and I'm playing Strauss and I'm playing Telemann and all my favorite composers. And, um, and with sort of no um, reason, except that I just want to play music and that it's, I'm trying to like find a way to enjoy that in a different way and in some, you know, in this day of, of isolation. And, and I, I'm shocked. I'm absolutely, I'm, I, I shouldn't be shocked, but I'm shocked at how very much I miss teaching my students and I miss playing music with other people. And I'm sure that I'm not alone in that, mm-hmm. but I think we can kind of find some solace in reminding ourselves why we do what we do and finding a way to make playing music really enjoyable, whether it's like the quote right way or not, um, by practicing your fundamentals and working on etudes and, um, you know, that now I, I just find I'm really trying to find ways to play music and just enjoy just playing it. The other follow-up question I had was, what was that secret sauce that Bill Williams gave you about (laughs) auditions? Yeah, well, he taught me a lot about focusing, and I actually met him because he did a talk at the Sarasota Opera when I was there for um, the one season I did that at the end of my master's degree. He did a talk on taking auditions and focusing, and it was just a one-hour talk. And I was in Rochester, which is about a six-hour drive from New York City, and I made that commitment to drive six hours to take audition lessons, because I and I couldn't afford it. It was $100 an hour in 2004, and um, I couldn't afford it, but I felt like I couldn't afford not to, so I did it. And he taught me how to play my best under pressure in that little five minute window and how to focus. And so a lot of it was learning to let go of mistakes, um, learning to focus your mind before you play an excerpt. Um, He had me do a lot of visualization. So a lot of practicing without the oboe and, you know, imagining if I was the very best oboist I could ever imagine being, how would my Beethoven three sound? Because if it's not in your mind, it's not going to magically come out of the oboe. A thousand percent. So I think he had me do a lot of mental practice. He would have me do things like run up a flight of stairs and then walk in and play the audition, the mock audition, of course. Um, and then he would talk me through what happened. We did a lot of talking also. Um, I think if I remember correctly, he had a uh, little bit of a psychology background as well as being a musician. And so we talked a lot about before we started doing the mock auditions and the process by which we learned to play auditions well, um, and this, it it applies to recitals and other concerts too. It's not just auditions. The concepts apply to everything. But um, we did a lot of talking and he first said, now how do you feel when you take an audition? And I had not been doing very well at auditions. And here I am about to finish my master's at Eastman. I've had some of the best teachers one could ever imagine. and I'd practiced so hard and I'd worked so hard for so long and nothing was happening. And he said, 
well, how do you feel? And I went on and on and on about my reads. And he said to me, and I think a lot of your listeners will um, relate to this. He said, you have to let go of the emotional attachment to your reads or you're not going to get anywhere. Oh my God. And that hurts. That I really know, hurts. it's a little painful. It's a little painful. But he was so right. He was oh, so no. right. And so I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to get anywhere, I've got to try to do that. And so little by little, I worked on letting go of the emotional attachment to the reads and what they're doing and letting it impact how I would play and getting past, like no matter what read I was playing on that day, making sure that I was mentally in a good place to play well, mentally in a good place to be really prepared, number one, of course, but that's obvious, but then making sure that, um, I was mentally focused and sharp and that I was practicing that process with him, with friends, with other people before it really mattered and really counted. Um, He also told me to leave a lot of, this is a little tidbit. um, He told me to leave some wiggle room. And by that, I mean that if it's, if you're playing a really fast excerpt, let's say La Scala di Seta for oboe, let's say you're playing the fast excerpt. He said, well, leave a little room that you can play a little faster because it's not uncommon to play an excerpt and have the committee ask you to play it at a different tempo. And if you can't play it any faster, you can't do anything. So you have to leave room for adjustments and have thought through, if you're playing Mendelssohn three, can you play it a little faster? Maybe go three clicks under your maximum, you know, tempo of of a fast excerpt or La Mer or something like that. Um, So he told me to leave a little wiggle room in both directions to go slower, faster, louder, softer. Um, Yeah, and it really had paid great dividends. And even though I didn't end up in a full-time orchestra position, it really prepared me to perform well, to perform better. All of those concepts apply to performance, not just auditions. And helped me to realize that it's, these are all different skills that we need to learn. And in my studio classes at UMKC, I will often do audition prep. So we're not just learning the excerpts, we're learning to play them really well, not only in the context of the orchestra, uh, but also if you're gonna play them in audition, what are the skills we need to bring our very best playing forward under pressure in that little five minute audition? These skills also seem very applicable in a competitive setting and you have been very active in competitions. Uh, So I'd love to hear a bit about your experience in and maybe what you learned from engaging in competitions. Yeah, I've done a lot of competitions. um, I did, in most of them, their age limit is um, 30. So I did a lot up until there and probably every year or two, I would do a competition and it would range from, the competition at my school, like a concerto competition, or um, I did Barbaroli, I did Gillet twice, I did Concert Artist Guild, and, um, you know, it was probably in Gillet that I learned the very, very most, and I really, at the time, I think I was just so young and working really hard at trying to play a really great, you know, competition performance, and you know, I realized that I was practicing like crazy and I was putting so much pressure on myself. We've all been there where we really put so much pressure on ourselves. And I felt a lot of pressure because it was at IDRS. 
And I felt a lot of pressure because it was this big competition and it wasn't necessarily pressure to win. It was just to really play really, really well. And, you know, the night before July, when I actually played and I put my oboe in the case and I was done practicing, done rehearsing with the pianist, I thought to myself, you know, wow, it doesn't really matter what happens tomorrow because I improved so much in mm. practicing and preparing for that competition that that was the benefit. So yeah, it was really the practicing and, and improvement overall that I felt like that really benefited me so much more than the day of the competition, my 30 minute time slot. I'd love to hear about your recent recording project, Kaleidoscoping. Sure. Um, tell us about that and how you, um, how you decided on the idea to uh, record 21st century compositions for flute, oboe, and piano. So it's actually kind of a funny story how this recording got off the ground and got started. So the kaleidoscoping was in collaboration with Mike Gordon, who's principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony, and Sean Chen, who is uh, piano faculty at UMKC. And uh, a couple years ago, I had asked Mike to play the Dream Trio and the CPE Bach Trio Sonata on my faculty recital at UMKC. And so uh, we were backstage before the concert, and Mike said to me, sort of joking, I think, hey, we have half of a CD right here. And I said, oh, what a great idea. <laughs> and... I came back the next day and I said, oh, I found this grant we can apply for and we can do it here and the recording engineer at UMKC will help us and we can get this off the ground and I already found a label and we just have to figure out what else we want to play. And, um, and he kind of looked at me like a deer in the headlights, like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> He's really, like, it was just a passing comment. I think he really meant it. I, he was, I think he was happy to collaborate and contribute, of course. Um, but I, I don't think he really thought I would do it. And uh, so anyway, we didn't end up playing any of that rep from the recital on the recording, but we just were looking around for lesser known works and pieces that hadn't been recorded a lot, if at all. And so we ended up with Miguel de Aguila's um, piece, a trio, um, Seduction Dance, and then two pieces by Alyssa Morris, Coping, which we commissioned from her, and um, Coastal Kaleidoscope. And then Rubstoff wrote a piece called Marbella Fantasy, and that's sort of a lesser known work for that combination. And so they just all happened to be living composers, um, sort of the way that it it worked out, but, uh, but it was a lot of fun. And then we did a CD release concert and, uh, it was really a big project and really a challenge in so many ways I didn't anticipate, but also incredibly rewarding and, um, really nice to have done and supported some composers and, um, just getting some music out there. And then since then, I've actually had some students at UMKC and my chamber music groups play some of the music that, I recorded. And so then I've gotten to coach it and be on the other side of it. And they're excited to play some new music or music they hadn't heard of previously as well. That's fun when you can be like, well, I have a reference recording for right. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I have a reference recording. I'm the only one that's recorded it. <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and listen to that? Okay. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, except 
we got to do uh, edits. <laughs> oh, that's that's the best part. <laughs> we get to edit so that it sounds a little more perfect. So, so we've now um, discussed your work as a soloist, as a chamber musician, and as an orchestral musician, and. Those are um, three interrelated hats, but not everyone kind of wears them all comfortably. Can you talk about, I guess, being multifaceted? Is there a different approach that you take in each of these settings? Or how did you cultivate that diversity in your career? I think that cultivating that diversity is just, it wasn't necessarily that I um, set out to cultivate that diversity in my career. I was just excited to play any music at all with anyone or by myself. <laughs> you know? So um, I don't, I don't know that I set out to do, to do that, but in hindsight, I think it's really important that we can wear many hats as musicians and um, have the skill set to play in different styles or in different ways. Um, whereas if you're playing a solo recital versus second oboe in an orchestra, you're going to play a little differently. Your reads are going to be different. Um, but I think the thing that they all have in common are good fundamentals. And something I teach a lot about is making sure that you have established good fundamentals so that you can really turn on a dime and do what you need to do to modify your playing. It's no longer good enough to just be a good oboe player. You have to be good at these kind of different settings and different types of playing. Um, and, you know, if you're playing something very contemporary or Baroque music to change your style and change your colors or tone quality or approach to the music. So um, I think that being an academic has really fostered that variety in my career. Uh, I think as academics, we do wear many hats. And I do think it's important that we not only be able to do these, play these different kinds of music, but also, you know, be able to be a good colleague and, you know, serve on committees, perhaps teach another class. So you need public speaking skills, organizational skills, writing skills. And so I think that as academics, it sort of forces us into being better at different things, at many different things. When I first got my job at Oklahoma State, um, they asked in my interview on the phone, they said, would you feel comfortable teaching a music appreciation class? Well, of course the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I said, yes, <laughs> I will do that. I would love to do that. And it, the truth was I, I was excited to do that. Um, but it's a completely different skill set I had to develop. And I think you're asking more about the performing, but I have found being in academia that it's sort of necessary if you're going to take advantage of the opportunities presented to you. And I think that especially when you're getting started, you know, I, very few people have the wiggle room to say, I'm not going to take advantage of that opportunity. I don't think that's a good approach. I think that it's better to just, you know, figure, say yes and figure it out later. You know, and so I think a lot of the variety in my career has just been taking advantage of opportunities. And when one comes my way, I try to say yes. And, and I think now um, gotten a little more in the habit of saying no a little more now, but I've been at it for quite a while. So when I first started, I just thought, well, this is a, here's a competition I'll enter. Well, here's a chamber music opportunity to play at a festival. I'll do it. Oh, someone offered me a gig with a symphony. I need to do that. And so it was not just that 
you know, of course I might've needed the money from the gig, but also I wanted the experience and I wanted the resume builder and I wanted to know how to play in an orchestra because I think if I'm going to teach students, a lot of my students want to play in an orchestra and I owe it to them to be multifaceted and to understand what it takes to do those different types of playing really well. Along the same lines, orchestra jobs are really tough to get. I mean, any job in music is really tough to get. And I'd love to know more about how you encourage your students to think outside the box and be multifaceted and diverse and uh, engaging in the really very quickly changing um, economy that they are graduating into? Right. I think that's a great question. Well, I think similar to how I approach the oboe and teaching, um, I think the, the main thing I encourage is to take advantage of every opportunity that as students, you're really not in a position to say, well, I don't want to play second of all, or I don't want to play English horn, or I don't want, you know, like I think mm-hmm. it's important to say, oh, I get to play the English horn. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, a lot of students and people really love the English horn, of course, but, um, but I encourage open, an open mind. And I will say in studio classes, a lot of times when we're discussing auditions or job prospects, or we do resume building, or we do cover letter writing, um, that you have to be so open-minded to whatever comes your way and just be ready to go that, um, you know, I moved to Stillwater Sight Unseen and was excited to do so. And I think that you kind of can't be picky at first. You have Mm -hmm. to be really open and and just sort of be willing to take advantage of whatever opportunity presents itself. And once you have one opportunity, then you're in a great position because you can just take advantage of any opportunities that would better your situation um, and, and kind of keep you moving forward. And then and you have a little more of a choice once you have an opportunity. But I also encourage students to create some of their own opportunities, you know, form a chamber group, um, gather some students, get some experience teaching, get, you know, learn about your own playing through teaching, um, sell reads, you know, any of these things that we can do to be um, a little bit more creative about how we can make a spot for ourselves in this field is, is really good. And, um, you know, I think it's really um, sad and and scary right now with the orchestras and concerts being shut down. And so I think that's a really, that's, this is uncharted territory. So as far as, you know, um, graduating into the environment of, of no concerts or public gatherings, I think that is a much tougher question. And it's just sort of, it's so unprecedented that um, I'm very, I'm just hopeful that we can, you know, all isolate ourselves and quarantine ourselves so that this will, we can go back to normal as soon as possible. And I wonder if there's, you know, because for some people who perhaps are not willing to move to mm-hmm. <laughs> the middle of Oklahoma, sight unseen. Right. Yeah, right, right. I, I wonder if, <laughs> if that isn't like maybe that is an indicator that, you know, it's a grow where you're planted situation and. Mm-hmm. Um, an opportunity to find 
entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial niche where you are, if being where you are is important to you. Right. I think that's, that's very important. And I have talked about that to some of my students who would prefer to live in a bigger city. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's usually more opportunities for teaching and performing in a bigger city anyway. Um, typically. And so, yeah, I think that having an entrepreneurial approach to, um, you know, marketing yourself, we talked in studio class just literally three weeks ago about being more of a, you know, being more of a, you know, independent contractor and, and, you know, making sure that you are putting yourself out there, keep track of your income for your taxes, you know, things Mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily the fun part of music. Um, making sure that you are paying your taxes on income that you're making and (laughs) things like that, or or how you can create some opportunities for yourself. Could you tell us about a favorite or meaningful, significant memory that you have of a past performance or concert? Sure. Yeah. I was thinking about this very question and, um, I think I, can I name two? Is that okay? Sure. Name two. Because, and it's interesting because both of them, both of my most um, cherished memories, I think, of playing the oboe are when I was actually playing with concerto soloists that were not me, you know. Um, And one example of that was playing in the New York String Orchestra. We did performances in Carnegie Hall. And Leon Fleischer was the pianist, and we played Beethoven's Emperor Concerto. And that piece will always hold a special place in my heart. And the second movement, the oboes hardly play. <laughs> but it was really so moving. And my, you know, I remember the half notes where the oboes, it's the piano soloist, it was Leon Fleischer, and the two oboes, me and Chris Gowdy, you know, and we um, had these little chords, and he was playing, and I just felt like I was playing chamber music with Leon Fleischer. Yeah the best. Oh, I just, it was just the, the second movement just, you know, is so amazing. And to be on the stage of Carnegie Hall playing with someone like Leon Fleischer and to feel, and he was looking over at us and playing with us, you know, th- that was really moving. And my other favorite memory or very moving memory was playing in the Aspen Orchestra, the Aspen Music Festival, and Gil Shaham was playing Beethoven Violin Concerto. And Richard Woodhams was playing first and I was playing second. And I felt like I was playing chamber music with Gil Shaham and Richard Woodhams. And um, it was just really moving how these famous musicians that had probably, you know, Gil Shaham has probably played that concerto dozens, if not more times in his life. And he was turning to the orchestra and every time you had something to play, he would look at you and play with you. And I just felt like this, I had a great read too, by the way, that was really helpful. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that, you know, even though there were these famous, famous musicians and really amazing players that I felt like I was playing chamber music with them And um, it was really, both of those experiences were just really kind of stuck out in my mind as being incredibly memorable and special uh, musical experiences as. That's gorgeous. And now I want to know if you have any embarrassing memories that you would like to share with our listeners of maybe disasters that have happened on stage. 
I have a near disaster story. It was kind of a disaster, but I think it came out okay. I don't, it, I've kind of blocked it out. But so one time in grad school, I was playing a gig and I was playing second oboe in English horn. And I stupidly only had one English horn read. Oh God. <laughs> We all know where this is going. So we've all, you know, been disoriented by picking up an English horn. And I put, I just had been playing oboe for so long in the concert. And it was in the concert, of course, not rehearsal. And I pick up the English horn and I just brought it too close to my face. And I just hit my reed on my teeth. Eh. Yeah. And so I thought, oh no. And so I um, turned to the person playing the gig with me and I said do you have any English horn reeds <laughs> and he handed me this reed case from his pocket and there were English horn reeds in there they were not soaked I had a solo coming up in eight measures it was one of those switch in eight measures and then play a solo situation and so I just plucked a reed from his reed case I have no idea what it was if it worked if it was bad or good and I just blew really hard <laughs> terrifying so it was a good lesson for me though because I will always go to a gig with at least two English horn reads from here on out for the rest of my life (laughs) oh those teeth will get you every time it's like they know I know I have never before or since done that but of course I did it in the concert (laughs) oh man that That is quite embarrassing and horrifying terrifying Yeah, and I don't remember how the solo sounded. Um, I really don't even remember. I just remember being terrified that it wouldn't even come out. <laughs> you left your body. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I did. So that that eight measures, I was just who knows where I went. <laughs> wow. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Well, I think. Well, it's similar to some things I've said earlier. Um, I think taking advantage of any opportunity is really important. I think establishing good fundamentals in your oboe playing or bassoon playing is really, really important so that you can learn to play anything that's empowering. Um, making sure that your portfolio and CV is as diverse as possible so that you can demonstrate that you can wear many hats. I think that maybe something that people might not know that aren't in the academic realm, they might not know that you really have to do so many different things. I certainly didn't know until I got into it. Um, I knew I wanted to teach oboe, but I didn't really realize at the time when I first got my job at OSU, uh, how many other things I need to do. And so to best prepare yourself to be a good writer, to be good at communicating, to be responsible and organized, to be a self-starter. I think you have to be a self-starter if you're, um, you know, uh, in one of these jobs because you have to create your own opportunities a lot of the times. And I think that's really important. I also think I only have a master's degree, but I think since I got into the field, I think it's changed. And I think it's much more common now for pretty much everyone applying for these jobs to have a DMA. Mm -hmm. So um, that's just sort of part of what I think most people still need to sign up for and make sure they complete um, alongside their performance and um, teaching. I think that that DMA is becoming more and more important. And that's, that's a little different than when I got into it. Um, 
But yeah, I think that those things are really important. Just being sure you can wear many hats, get some public speaking experience. Oh, good point. Um, be able to teach a master class, practice teaching master classes. You can, I mean, I tell my students now, um, volunteer to do a, an all district audition clinic at your local middle school or high school. And usually band teachers are more than happy to have double read help with their students. And so, um, you know, volunteering to get that experience and practice doing your master class and practice teaching lessons. And, and if you have questions, I, I really like for my students to teach the younger students in the area in Kansas City. And a lot of times they ask me questions. You know, I have the student that's having this problem. How, how should I help them? And it's great because then they still have a resource in me every single week to ask questions about how to best teach and how to approach different problems they're encountering. So sort of diversifying your background and be, be ready to do anything. Um, and, you know, we talked about this earlier too, but I think that you kind of have to be prepared to move where the job is. There's just mm -hmm. a handful every year. And so you have to be prepared to go wherever that job is and grow where you're planted. Celeste, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for talking with us on Double Read Dish. We really appreciate you generously giving your time to us and our listeners. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. you enjoyed that interview thank you so much for joining us for this episode please don't forget to follow us on social media we are on facebook instagram and twitter and you can subscribe to us anywhere that you get your podcast we'd love it if you rated and left us a review chris who do we have coming up on the next episode you have barrick stees assistant principal bassoon of the cleveland orchestra chris time to end this nerd parade go make rage <laughs> oh. <laughs>